Welcome to the Mojo Innovators podcast brought to you by Jaguar and the new Jaguar XE. Hello, I'm Jenny Bully. On today's podcast, we're talking about one of the greatest voices of all time, the anointed queen of soul, Aretha Franklin. Aretha Louise Franklin gave her first solo performance at the age of 10 at the Baptist Church in Detroit where her father preached. Her dazzling sequence of albums for the Atlantic label in the late 60s and early 70s profoundly altered the landscape of soul and R&B. With me to talk about her formidable legacy via three key moments, her first album for Atlantic, her live gospel album and now hit film Amazing Grace, and her career revival in the 80s with Luther Vandross, are Mojo's in-house soul man, Jeff Brown, and the real voice of Simple Minds, soul singer Sarah Brown. Mm. Hello, hello. Hello. <laughs> so we're starting in 1967 with Aretha's first recording at Atlantic with producer Jerry Wexler, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. By this point, she'd already had a major recording contract with Columbia, but hits had eluded her. Why was that, Jeff? Uh, John Hammond, the A&R man at uh, Columbia Records, mm. had heard her. I mean, he was the guy who signed Bessie Smith and... Billy Holiday, and would later sign Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen to the label. Yeah. So he had ears. So he heard her in um, the gospel recordings that she'd made with her father and signed her to Columbia. Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, she had about three top ten hits in the first couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you listen to uh, the electrifying Aretha, um, there's a, a song on it called um, Nobody Like You, which was written by a friend of hers uh, from Detroit where, the, where she was living in from an early age, yeah. um, James Cleveland. And mm-hmm. it sounds just like the gospel records yeah, that she would that we'll come on to be later, doing. Yeah. Mm. So it's, it had started quite well at Columbia, but pretty quickly they lost focus. They struggled for good material, profoundly bad arrangements with laden with strings, and she just got pretty disillusioned yeah. with the whole affair. And when the contract ran out, Neither Columbia nor she wanted to renew it, and um, Jerry Wexler at Atlantic immediately snapped her up because mm. he'd been, you know, a fan for a very long time. Um, again, from her gospel records, yeah. and could kind of intuit where the whole process had been going wrong at Columbia, and when you know, sort of, um, she became available. Jerry Wexler snapped her up. Yeah. Mm. And Sam Cook uh, wanted her to sign with RCA. He wanted her to uh, take the same route that he'd taken mm. yeah. from being a gospel singer with the Soul Stirrers yeah, sure. and then going to RCA and having big hits. I know you have to wonder if she had have signed with somebody like, you know, Motown or Stax, you know, how different... What would have happened. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I do think that sort of a voice like Aretha's with the jazz albums and mm. even some of the, the bluesy type mm. rock and rolly ones which are great Aretha can't do anything wrong for me I've got mm. to be totally honest with you and mm. in a, in some of those old Columbia recordings mm. I do hear the cry mm. I still hear the cry mm. and I still hear the anointing but um, I do understand that some songs can squash a great voice mm. and right, it's yeah. not necessarily mm. anything other than bad production or just songs that aren't that great. Yeah. Mm. And she, she's the type of voice where she needs space, mm. space mm. from too many musicians. So the strings mm. that you're talking about, mm. it would have nullified things. Instead of giving it breath and, and space yeah. to breathe, it would have just 
restricted her. And mm. is that the difference you think between the way Jerry Rexler worked with her? At totally. And- I think it's totally mm. the difference. He understood that church element where she was coming from, where you leave space for the mm-hmm. <laughs> you hear that. Absolutely. You hear that. Somehow you hear it amongst the mm. yes, that mm. you still hear the mm-hmm. and and it's yeah. because the musicians were listening to the singer. And it wasn't just about being told what to do. Mm. Mm. You know, I think she would have gone into this corporate industry with Columbia with her need and desire to become famous and and actually squashed her own self. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's lucky then that she did end up with Atlantic. And uh, the story of how I Never Loved a Man was recorded is kind of legendary now, not mm. least a wonderful feature by Lois Wilson in Mojo a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. Mm-hmm. And so Atlantic had flown Aretha and Ted White, who's her husband and manager, down to uh, Alabama to Rick White's fame studios there at Muscle Shoals. Muscle Shoals, yeah. Where an altercation in the studio led to the session being abandoned after one day. Do you mm. want to take up the story there, Jeff? Yes. Well, um, Jerry Wexler had used um, fame studios. He'd, he'd started off using Stack Studios in Memphis, mm. um, but then he started having too many hits out of there. <laughs> and Jim Stewart, the owner of Stax, said um, he'd put a total ban on other labels using his studios to record. Wow. (laughs) Um, So uh, Wexler decided, well, um, I'm going down to Rick Hall's fame studios um, because he'd heard some of the hits that are already coming out of there, like Arthur Alexander's... Percy Sledge was one, wasn't it? Percy Sledge Mm. and, yeah. Wilson Pickett? That's the guy he took down there first and um, he, you know, sort of played with these, Mm. you know, sort of tremendous session musicians there and Mm. saw that everything worked. Mm. And also, unlike Memphis, in Muscle Shoals, there's not too many other diversions apart from just going to the studio (laughs) and making the music because there's, you know, sort of there's there's nothing else really to get Mm. um, distracted by. So um, he took Aretha and her manager, Ted White, down there without them knowing that the studio man was all white southern guys. Mm. Right. So Wexler had said to Rick Hall, can you please book a black horn section, which Rick Hall, being Mm. a fairly stubborn man, ignored. The session went along very, very well indeed, and they got the the first track done, the A-side, I Never Loved a Man, I Love You. But towards the end of it, um, alcohol started to be slowly Mm. consumed, Mm. and one of the horn section started having a a bit of well we familiar it, we, yeah mm-hmm. yeah he, he started well you might call it banter but it was you know yes probably would now <laughs> probably yeah they probably would try and get away with it by saying that but um ted white her mm. short fused husband, husband and manager mm-hmm. took offense he did yeah. take offense yes, and you, you know yeah. sort of rightly so so an, an argument ensued, as the <laughs> police report says. But they managed to get Ted and um, Aretha out of the studio, back to the hotel, and try to calm things down. But um, Rick Hall, the studio owner, mm. went to the hotel to try and um, mollify everything, but only sort of poured oil <laughs> on the flames <laughs> and uh, and a proper fist fight did take you know yeah. did, on the balcony did, did of the oh, flat, wasn't it because yeah. 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 Jerry Wexler claimed that shots up. were fired well yeah but um but in the morning when everybody expected the session to 
pick up. Mm. They'd gone back They'd to gone. Aretha yeah. and Ted had yeah. gone back to New York. Well, Ted had left Aretha, mm. didn't yeah. he? She didn't realise. They had had some kind of dis- argument, oh. I think, as well. well. Mm. And he went to the airport. She couldn't find him. So she went to the airport and said, well, I'm not going to stay here. When oh, she got God. there, yeah, yeah. she saw she was, him there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So that was clearly the end of that marriage. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, not I think quite I, yet. Was that marriage Sadly. one or two? I think the... <laughs> I think was that marriage? One. But um, she'd obviously, by that time, I mean, by the age of 16, she'd had two children. Oh, so yeah. She was yeah. First one at 14. Yeah. 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 Which so is, in the, you know, in the late 50s as well, mm. which is quite... Yes. It does make yeah. you wonder. I mean, I don't know if you... Do you guys know the story of that? What happened there? Well, was uh, that her just being a naughty little girl? She's never or actually, yeah, they don't, don't talk about it. Well, I thought it was just me, never, just not. No, yeah, it's all stum stum. Mention was there not in the book she did with David Ritz that, you know, that the lifestyle mm. of the touring musicians, even yeah. gospel musicians, yeah. was mm. quite wild then, oh, even in the late fifties. Oh, it was yeah. almost especially the gospel musicians. Yes. I mean, that <laughs> was that was the problem. Her her father was this charismatic preacher. Yes, and Barbara, her mother, had kind of left the family when Aretha was six yes. and gone, gone to Buffalo in New York. Yeah. And then she died at the age of 10, so she mm. didn't really mm. have a, a mother's influence yeah. at all. That's right. So that's right. That, was a, a, that would a, have been a, a major... Yeah. And that's where a lot of the pain of the voice yes, comes absolutely. from. Absolutely. Absolutely. The cry. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Completely. So back in Alabama, Sarah, there was only one song in the can, but what a song it was. Tell mm. us a bit about Aretha's performance on I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. You're a heartbreaker. <laughs> um, I think it must have felt brilliant for Aretha. Number one, she was reintroduced to her piano. Yeah. There's something that she can hide behind. It's something really familiar. It's like me coming in here today feeling a little bit anxious. Actually, let mm. me put my hat on. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, just something that's familiar. I can smell it. I can touch mm. it and I can hide behind. And so uh, I think for Aretha, that would have been a real familiar moment. Yeah. And the, the melody loaned itself to a gospel singer like Aretha. That mm. It wasn't too wordy. Right. Yeah. There was enough space so she could reiterate her point. So you're a heartbreaker. Yo She can go there with it. Yeah. She can be that queen that we all love. Yeah. And also the fact that the story in the song would have yes, fitted oh, very well, fitted completely mm. well with her. So one of the great things that gospel singers come to the floor with is their faith. Sure. It doesn't make sense to anybody else, but it makes sense to them. It's a pill to them. Mm. So if you can give a gospel singer a song that makes sense to them, they can apply the same technique. And I think yeah. here the story sat on top of her yeah. testimony. The emotional investment is completely there, isn't it? Totally yeah. there. So I think there was some kind of counselling and therapy for her mm. through this performance. And you yeah. see it when you watch the, the, the whole Muscle Shows thing. You, you see it and you yeah. definitely hear it. It's like, wow, Yeah. where have you been? <laughs> you know, that cry. Yeah. Totally. It's just magnificent. Yeah. So I think Atlantic Records at Muscle Shoals with this recording session gave Aretha Franklin. That was the birth, the rebirth of the Queen. Sure, Mm. absolutely. And that's because Dan Penn said similar, didn't he, that he knew while she was recording that, that, you know, history was being made. Yeah, Mm. breakthrough was Mm. happening. Mm. 
So from those anguished beginnings came Aretha's first million-selling record. Pain and transcendence would become a hallmark of her career. Jerry Wexler called her Our Lady of Mysterious Sorrows. But she had set a new template for soul music. Can you tell us a bit about that, Jeff? Yes, well, I think it's, it sort of did come from her, the upbringing, you know, sort of the parental yeah. um, disconnect, really, yes. that there was. The father was unable, because of his of the demands on him as a, a Baptist preacher. Mm. Um, he not only had his uh, New Bethel Church in Detroit, but he was mm. a really um, big, big wheel in the Baptist Church as a whole. Yeah, and he was a very would, powerful man. Yeah. And he would yeah. go around the country mm. um, spreading the word. And, um, and speaking politically very, as well. Speaking we? politically, yeah. I mean, yes, he was good friends with Martin Luther yeah. King. Mm-hmm. And was you know sort of not afraid to yes, you know sure. sort of raise which, money yes. and express himself pretty clearly yes, um, yes. on the on the subject of civil rights. Mm. Yeah. And that's another key point, really. Here is Sarah, isn't it? That her sort of, she has a lot of political resonance in America at that time. Mm. Yes, I think like her former mentor Mahalia Jackson, she mm. recognised that by this stage she had worldwide attention, certainly Mm. America was listening to her and she recognised that although she was a sweetheart, she could address a subject that was quite sensitive. Mm. Let's look at this thing, the issue of colour and how my race has been trodden under by you, the Caucasian Mm. race, who has helped my career and who claim to love me. Let's look at this. Mm. And she did it by singing. Which was political a, songs. Mm. Respect me now. Mm. You know, and, and she did it really well, quite gracefully, I think, in the same way that Mahalia Jackson did. Absolutely. Um, mm. Although I Never Loved a Man was the romantic first hit on that song, it was mm. the second um, big single from Absolutely. it. Yes. <clears throat> Respect. Yes. That she kind of purloined almost from, from, from Otis, o- Otis yeah. Redding. Yes. And yes. made it her own song totally completely. Made it you know. And yes. made it an absolute anthem for yeah. you know, feminism around the world to this day. Com- <clears throat> and I, I think it was easy for her to do this mm. because, again, she had failed relationships. She was in the church where you would think there was equality. Mm. It was actually the man's word females could not preach you were allowed to sing but Mm. you weren't allowed to preach and here she is now being part of Columbia then Atlantic she's a puppet so actually she's been given a song where she can oh there's a loophole here Mm. I can really stand up in my greatness Mm. in my female self I don't need to burn my bra, but certainly I can stand up Absolutely. and I can let this message be heard. Yeah, it's and, very, and, very and she powerful. did that. It's and extremely you, powerful. Yeah. Mm. And do you think it was also a message to her husband and things like Com- that? Yeah. I think it was definitely mm. a message to her husband. Absolutely. Again, Listen here, Boston. The, yeah, the full <laughs> emotional investment. Absolutely. Yeah, mm. completely. Mm. I think it was Etta James who said, wasn't it, to Mojo, that, you know, at that time, Female singers were pimped out either by their managers, mm. husbands, whatever. Completely mm. pimped to make out. Money. That's completely yeah. pimped yeah. out. And I think through through the ages have been very subtly wiped out because mm. we don't hear that much of Bessie Smith, mm. Ma Rainey, no, sure. mm. Mama Thornton. Mm. We don't. Yeah. We hear about Willie Johnson and, and this one and that one, but somehow <laughs> yeah, we, they've been very subtly mm. wiped out. Mm. And I have a real passion for it mm. because I think actually they were great pioneers absolutely 
On that note, it's time to pay some RESPCT to our sponsor, to Jaguar. You're listening to the Mojo Innovators podcast, brought to you by Jaguar and the new Jaguar XE. Mm. Okay, drum roll please, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) At Mojo, we're always learning new things for mold. About how music history complements and informs our our understanding of the best new records. Jaguar work the same way. Jaguar! And their collaboration with the premium audio brand Meridian Meridian. shows how heritage values and a cutting-edge outlook can sit side by side. Side by side! In perfect company. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Sarah Brown. (laughs) <laughs> Too much coffee. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's January 1972, everyone, and 29-year-old Aretha goes to the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in LA to record a live gospel album over two nights. The film director, Sidney Pollack, is there with a film crew to record the sessions. And, uh, you know, it's worth saying that historically this is a very um, tumultuous time in America, isn't mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, you'd just come out of the late 60s where there was... Um, obviously a lot of rioting and mm. civil unrest. Yeah. Martin Luther King had been assassinated, Bobby Kennedy had been yeah. assassinated. These were all... Poignant figures. Yeah. Absolutely important figures and everything like that had resonated with Aretha because she felt that these these were her constituency that were yeah. being assaulted, mm. being attacked. Yeah. And she'd done directly. a lot of work with Martin Luther King. Yes. So, so they she would have felt dismantled. Yeah, yeah, she would yeah. have felt an element of that yeah. disabling. Yeah, Absolutely. and she would have felt it through her father as well because yeah. they were they were good friends. Yes, she right. and um, well, um, her father yeah. paid towards the campaign. Yes, yes. I mean yeah. that's a big deal. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. And she sang mm. on she these did. campaigns. Yeah, mm. yeah. I gather uh, "Precious Lord" was Martin Luther King's favourite song. Yeah. She would God. perform it for him. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. yes. So it's amazing enough just to hear Aretha singing gospel in her mm. primary. Yes, isn't it? it is. But how important was this recording at the time, Jeff? Well, it was immensely important for her, mm. for her career, mm. which had slightly stalled. Mm. But previously, a couple of years previous to it, she'd recorded live at the Fillmore, yeah. which made her realise that it was possible to do a really in-the-moment live yes. recording. recording yes. And a couple of um, uh, albums after that, she did Spirit in the Dark, which is a, a great you know, sort of quasi, almost almost gospel record. Mm. The, the the title track itself is, you know, gospel by any other name. Absolutely. And there's a track on it called Pullin', which, you know, has got the gospel dynamics, particularly um, towards the end of the track, are mm. brilliant, wonderful. So with those elements behind her and the long-held desire to get back to her roots and record yeah. a genuine gospel album... She just kind of insisted that this be done. And um, to their credit, Atlantic put the whole thing Mm. together. And you get this wonderful kind of combination of an in-the-moment recording session, a church service, Mm, and obviously with um, Pollack's, uh, Sidney Pollack's movie, a film set. Mm. It's turned into a film set as well. The church is turned into a film set. Yeah, it's, it's, but it is um, it's mm. tremendous, um, a tremendous film and a, a brilliant, brilliant album. It shows you how um, 
vital a performer she was. I mean, she does yeah. get completely lost yes. in the moment. Yes, she, she does. does. Many, many times. She yeah. She's reduced to tears. She yes. reduces... Um, Clara Ward. She, she and reduces me. Clara Ward. <laughs> me, I've seen it four times and I, I kind of me too, fill yeah. up a bit. Me too, completely. Yeah. I mean, what a spirit. Mm. Absolutely. And you get you know, such a sense of how, you know, again, invested she was in that totally. performance from the film, don't you? In, it completely. Her, for me, that performance, that recording, as you so rightly said, she's lost. She's yeah. able to completely lay back. Yeah, she's got her friend James Cleveland. Mm. James would have been with her since she was seven years old. Yeah, mm. you know, and so he was an emotional rock, and also a spiritual rock. Mm. He understood that her faith, which never left her, Surely, and she yeah. was always anchored to her faith. So whatever happened, she would go to her faith, to her God, and she would release her anguish. Mm. from the divorces mm. and so you know she turned to her faith mm. and in this recording it showed it massively mm. it she mm. just surrendered to the in front she was with the people she loved she was <clears throat> with the choir mm. that she knew and it was also a very turbulent time for her personally with ted and yes talk of her she'd been drinking a lot and, yes. yes and i i wonder whether there's an aspect of going Back to her father as much as going I back to the church. I think those two things are Jenny, hand in hand. A hundred percent. Because essentially, in my opinion, Aretha Franklin was and died a choir girl. Yeah. Mm. And if yeah, you know so anything about that choir process, it stays with you for the rest of your life. You have a family. You're keyed into them mm. because the rules of singing in a choir are you have to listen to the next harmony beside you and those beside you. So you're all projecting into the centre of the room together. Yeah, She had that down. And I completely agree with you. She would have ran to her heavenly father first and she would have ran to her earthly father second. Yeah. I 100%. And so when she was singing and screaming those notes out, mm. it was a cry for help and she was happy to do so with her father there and yeah. her mentor Clara Ward. Yes. How, how do you manage then if, if you're a, mm -hmm. a choir singer and you're always listening to the person next to you, if you suddenly become a great solo star, how do you square well, I th that? I think Aretha was a solo star before she became a disciplined choir member mm. um, because mm, she was singing mm. her father would have put her on, on in, in, in churches like that you often see five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds mm. singing or playing drum or doing something. Mm. Whatever, Whatever their gift yeah. is, they're promoted. Mm. It's not held down. And so she would have been definitely encouraged by James oh, Cleveland, yeah. by her father, yeah. to sing on her own. Yeah. I mean, her father right. knew very early on, didn't he, that she was special. He Absolutely, coached her. Yes. And Absolutely, and you, yes. And yeah. you know what, guys? Yeah. Another thing, when you listen to those types of gospel um, mm. singers because there's different forms of gospel mm. you've got them you know the is it the frisk singers mm. that mm. are more contained and more mm. somber but you've got the pentecostal types which is mm. where she yeah, was yeah. Where we are, yeah. um, it's all about the mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah oh there's never mm. a kind of silent period really mm. it's yeah. not silent for mm. long there's always someone Something, in the choir yeah. coming out and they're encouraged mm. to do that mm. One of the people who, or two of the people who were helping to bring her up after her mother's death 
were Mahalia and Clara That's Ward. Right. That's Mahalia right. Jackson and Clara Ward. And can so, you imagine being underneath <laughs> those wings as mm. a spiritual gospel singer? She wasn't just an entertainer. She wasn't pretending to sing like a Christian. She was the real deal. Yeah. She was saying, this is what I believe. Yeah. And she wasn't keen into the logical, oh, well, you can't see God, so what's the point in believing him? She was just keen into what she felt. Yeah. We mm. all do. It's about the feeling that you get when you've disconnected yourself from the logical and you go through to the emotional and then into the spiritual. Yeah. And that would have been an, an elevated time for her mm. because Clara was there. Mm. And when she sang the, the hymn mm. Amazing Grace, we saw mm. Clara was reduced to tears. Mm. Yeah, mm. and then up on her feet and... <laughs> up on her feet and frothing and going yeah, for it, man. Amazing. She was going for yeah. it in that true Pentecostal way. You can't completely. fake that. No, mm. completely. And mm. it is, we were saying this in the office about how the choir are sitting down for a yeah. little bit. And mm. it's amazing that they can sing mm. like that. Guys, mm. I was absolutely surprised yeah. because as a child I listened to that. And to sing what they're singing, mm. they've got some diaphragm. Absolutely. Their diaphragm <laughs> is sick. Mm. To sit down and project like that, yeah. I'm telling you, it's not easy. And one of the great things about being able to see it now as a film and not just a live oh. album is mm. all that sort of body language. You it's see all of it. Mm. It is astonishing. It's, it's completely astonishing, Jenny. The, what really mm. astonished me is what Jenny's saying. The choir was sat down. Mm. I mean, mm. apart from the comedy of the silver waistcoats yeah. and the hair, the, the hair yeah. There's a nod to funk right there, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> there were so many characters in that choir. Absolutely. How many James Browns did we see? Do you know what I mean? It was just like amazing. Completely. Unbelievable. And you see how completely, you know, you were saying it earlier about how totally kind of in the zone she is. And I think my favourite bit is when her her father comes oh, up and starts mm. mopping her brow oh, and, mm. and she's singing all oh, the time and kind of mm. pretending he's not there. Oh, and it's yeah. like whenever you've done your kid's yeah. eyebrows with a tissue in the mm. playground. You know, mm. <laughs> I completely get that. It's the, mm. the whole thing of, that to me was like the prodigal son. When The story of the prodigal son, you yeah. know, he mm. goes off, does his thing and then he comes back with his tail in between his legs but yet his father <laughs> still put on the, the greatest feast for him. Yeah. And I think here, as you said before, Jenny, you know, the fact that She's running to her dad. Mm. Yeah. And I think in that moment, he he really feels it. Mm. And she's sat by the piano, isn't she? And she's mm. playing beautifully. Mm. And he just tenderly takes the handkerchief and starts yeah. to wipe her brow. Literally <laughs> <laughs> mid Really? Well. I just wanted to die I at know, that moment. Lovely. It yeah. was absolutely beautiful. It was just those two in the room at that point. Yeah. Mm. Which, of course, it was not, mm. because there was an awful lot of the, uh, you know, Atlantic Rolling personnel and the Rolling yeah. Stones. Tell yeah. us a bit about the personnel on that album. Mm. Oh, well, I mean, um, they, they had flown the the best New York studio team that there was um, out to Los Angeles. Um, Bernard Purdy on drums. I mean, Fantastic. could yeah. not get any better. Chuck no. Rainey on bass, <laughs> yes. Cornell Dupree. Don't see enough of him in the film, I thought. On guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and that rhythm yeah. section played together quite they, a lot, didn't they? Oh, on they Steely did. I mean, they were, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, they were the, the mm. number one call in yeah. New York at the time, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And for a long time after, yeah. to be fair. <laughs> and that's what but, I think was brilliant, don't you, about yes. that whole recording as well? The fact that she had clout and what she said was, you know what, let's get mm. the best. Mm. Let's get the best on this gospel mm. album. Yeah. Mm. And they took it to town because the funk that was coming out of that yeah. rhythm yeah. section is scary. And of course, yeah. you've been quite absorbed in 
gospel lately mm. for your own project at the moment. Yeah, yeah, the project is a tribute to Mahalia Jackson. Um, I grew up listening to Mahalia and Aretha. And to be honest with you, that's all I was allowed to listen to. So the Mahalia passion came about because of the indulgence of that's what was in front of me so that's what I played and that's what I listened to Mm. and it's been with me throughout my childhood younger years of my career I've always listened to her and I know also that Mahalia influenced the likes of Elvis Presley and so I just wanted to based upon what we were saying earlier how some of the women in the industry have been very gracefully silently not heard of. I wanted to just respectfully, without burning my bra, just give a tribute to a very strong woman who Mm. struggled in life. Mm. Really look forward to hearing it. Look forward to that, yeah. Thank you. I I Mm. hope I can do it justice. Mm. Mm. So just quickly before we close on uh, Amazing Grace, what were your highlights from the film? Goodness gracious me, there are so many. I mean, Mm. as I said earlier, I've kind of filled up um, at different times, the four times I've seen it. Mm, yeah. um, but I do think that um, that little bit where you suddenly cut to a rehearsal where they are sort of rehearsing a number and she's got yes. the... the my the, highlight the, too. The, the coat, was it really? Yeah. The, it the kind of, it the looks raincoat like over. Versace from it does. Yeah. Yeah. It does. And then, it does. And then you suddenly switch back into the service for real. Yeah. And it's the same song, you know, sort of a, a beach not like dropped. An angel. Yeah, and she's, she's wearing kind a gown. Of just yeah. dressed in, and and it's it's a wonderful cut, really. Is it's yeah. a brilliant, brilliant piece of cinema and of music. Mm. Yes, mm. and it also embodies just what we've been, you know, the whole point of this yes. particular mm. episode is that yes. Aretha took gospel and the feeling from gospel mm. and mm. applied it to pop lyrics, and boom, yes. you know, yeah. more successfully than. Yeah. Any other artist yeah. at that time. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. I, I think I completely agree with you. I think uh, Aretha took her, I would say, she took her anointing, which mm. basically means her gift from yeah. God. Mm. She took it and she didn't claim it as her own. She took it and she said, in that moment of recording, she said, God, I give this back to you. I say thank you to you. I'm not going to be embarrassed about mentioning you mm. and I'm going to sing it for your glory mm. and hence the Versace and everything <laughs> yeah. she strips that mm-hmm. off and she's just in a really plain gown mm. yeah, and it's, it's like wonderful. a baptism of it the spirit is, isn't it? it's mm. a rebirth yeah. and she's saying you know in, in all the drunkenness because she's drinking yeah. a lot and she's just saying you know what I'm a man I make mistakes mm. but I love you God well, we could talk about Amazing Grace all day, but then we wouldn't have time for our last uh, album from Aretha's career, and that is 1982, mm. and uh, Jump To It, which yes. is, some might say is the sublime to the ridiculous. Yes! <laughs> I'm so glad you said it. <laughs> but the reason we've alighted here is because, like a lot of soul stars of the era, she struggled during the time of disco, didn't she, Jeff? She mm. did. I mean, um, towards the end of the 70s, she was having a great problem, like, Almost every other artist of her generation and style, there seemed to be no real place for them mm. that made them sound that could make them sound good mm. in 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 that era. Mm. Um, and I remember interviewing Niall Rogers, and he said that they had a conversation about Chic producing her in 1979 when Chic were the you know kind of the the again the go to people. Yeah. In the disco movement, I'd love to have heard that, wouldn't you? And she, <laughs> yeah. well, um, she had um, a song that she'd written and she wanted to do called um, 
I'm going to be the only star down at the disco tonight. Wow, that's <laughs> quite wordy, isn't it? Mm, it is a bit. It is a bit. Oh, that's how he remembered it. And he just, Bernard Edwards, just sort of said, right. you know, quite frankly, that we are not going to be the guys who go down in history yeah, for this. as the men mm. who made the Queen of Soul Die. a disco hit. Yeah, I do think that um, felt that it was debasing her. Yeah, yeah. And, um, um, and in fact, she did make the record. It was called Only a Star, and it was part of an album called La Diva, oh. um, which was a, a very, very rare flop for her, um, produced by Van McCoy. And that was the last record she made on Atlantic because mm. obviously it was such a flop that she and they knew that it was the end of the road for them. Right. But, I I'm mean, Clive Davis... Oh. Yeah. Clive Davis at Arista snapped her up yeah. very, very quickly. And I think the, the third record they did, um, they again, they'd been trying various yeah. producers and they lighted on Luther Vandross, who had been a singer... A session singer in New York and had mm, you know right. sung on chic hits Bowie. and, and yeah, changed Bowie it. Gave him his big Later down, yeah. Bowie, Bowie, yeah. So he kind of produced this you know sort of um, yeah. successful hit single, jumped to it, mm. um, uh, and an album that was you know sort of not quite as um, riveting as some of the <laughs> the Atlantic records, mm. but that just kind of showed mm. the the difficulty that there was for an artist yeah. like Impulsive. her yeah. to find... Um, know, and I do remember yeah. interviewing Luther just before his solo debut came out called Never Too Much, mm. and I'd asked him what, you know, his influences had been, <laughs> had he sung in church, etc., yeah. etc., et which, you know, um, it might be a bit of a cliche, but uh, I thought it had to be asked, yeah. and he did kind of bridle at it and sort of said, we don't all sing in church, yeah. you know. Yeah. And mm. I thought, mm. well, I wonder if you are the, you know, sort of going to be able to bring out I know. the very, very best yeah. in Aretha, mm. mm-hmm. if that is your feeling about yeah. Are- gospel. Yeah, yeah. Gospel it's interesting, music, isn't it? That. But this, I mean, jump to it puts Aretha in a whole different setting, doesn't yes. it? Mm. I mean, there are, I quite like how he sort of recast her as this sort of sassy, you know, godmother mm-hmm. of, there's a hilarious lyric about, you know, the, getting the 411 on who's got kicked who. I'm, <laughs> I don't really know what that means. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> I'm still trying to work it out. <laughs> I had to Google it. A 411 oh, is like the phone directory, oh, like a like a yellow pages right, or something. Right, right, so right, her right, and her yeah. girlfriends are getting the, you know, the full <laughs> info on, on who's yeah. drop kicked Yes, and I think that's my tr- my problem with it. Mm. I I find it a bit naff, mm. and she's not yeah. naff. Absolutely, yeah. no. Yeah, but that was the problem that they, you know that there was in that era. But at least it did, you know, sort of, it gave her a gold record, yeah, and it it, it made mm-hmm. her name current again. Yes, exactly. And yeah. that led to you know sort of later on yeah. the mm. duets and, and yes. what have yeah. you, which yes. which kept her name current throughout the eighties. Yes. Absolutely, yes. which very yes. few of her peers. From mm, the 70s, yeah. you know, could lay yeah, claim yeah. to. And what about in this kind of period in 82, what about the way she's singing? Is there anything unique about that? Because it strikes me that she seems, on Jump well, to It, she's using her voice in a slightly different way than it is. It's her mid and lower mm. registers. And she still sounds amazing. And I, yeah, and mm. I love her lower registers. Mm. She's able to do that old... Mm-hmm, but she did that yeah. also on the... Um, Amazing yes, ways. You do yeah, hear yeah, yeah, her yeah. going down yeah. there. But again, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not 
an immense <laughs> lover of the 80s. No. no. Stone me now. No. Oh, no. <laughs> because I'm not. We're with you no. all the way. Right. But it did show, as Jeff said, that Aretha was current again and it led to some, you know, amazing things like mm. uh, Who's Zooming Who and yeah. Uh, yeah. I Knew You Were Waiting with George Michael, mm-hmm. which, you know, yeah. yeah. You know, and Sisters. Yeah. And Sisters, yeah. Mm. And around yeah. this time, or slightly before that, she done her cameo in the Blues Brothers too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes. And that was another, you know, sort of area that um, filmmakers must have seen that and thought yeah. you know, it would have been better if she'd have been in James Brown's shoes and been in that church, <laughs> sequence, <laughs> church sequence in the Blues Brothers. But yeah. uh, but there we are. Mind yeah. you, I love her. And, and her sister is one of the backing vocalists yeah. in the cafe. In the cafe, yeah. 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 Oh, well, listen, we could talk about Aretha all day. All day, that's true. Absolutely. But that is all we've got time for, and I would just like to say huge, huge thanks to Jeff Brown and to Sarah Brown. Thank you. Thank Thank you for listening. Thanks very much. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate and subscribe. Next time, I'll be talking about Pete Townsend with Mojo's ace face Pat Gilbert and Who biographer Mark Blake. To hear all the music discussed on this podcast, visit the Mojo Innovators playlist on Apple Music. The Mojo Innovators podcast was brought to you by Jaguar and the new Jaguar XE. The producer was Simon Barnard. I'm Jenny Bully. Thanks for listening.